really edit. Hi everybody, welcome to the Overeaters Anonymous Recovery from Relapse meeting. Today is the 9th of November. I am delighted to introduce Dawn. See who's going to come and talk to us today to share his experience, strength and hope. Dawn has been in a way for nearly 40 years. Uh, it'll be 40 years in January. So I'll let him take over and uh, tell you a story. Take it away, Don. Thanks very much, Rita. I guess I had passport problems or something here with the internet. Anyway, uh, thanks for asking me to speak, Rita. My name is Don. I'm a compulsive eater and food addict. Uh, 39 years and 10 months in the program. So coming up on 40, as Rita was saying. 37 years abstinent, maintaining approximately 185 pound weight loss now for about 35 plus years. I guess that 185 pounds is like uh, 28 stone or something like that. And the 185 pound loss is about 13 stone. As, as was mentioned, I think you can read my full story in the uh, uh, Readers Anonymous third edition book. It's entitled Freedom Isn't Free. Uh, you can also read on my blog about 125 postings about 12-step recovery. That's all I talk about on there. Uh, that's doncoawordpress.com. I'll put that in the, in the chat room. So my, my theme this afternoon, and almost always is, but not always, but my theme today is really going to be about that, that title, Freedom Isn't Free. Freedom Isn't Free. And that's what I've found over almost those, the 40 years that, uh, that we're talking about. I have found that OA is a program of action, 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 actions, many actions to find freedom from the food and many daily actions to stay free. Staying free is, uh, is hard. Uh, so that's what I'm gonna share my experience on this afternoon. A little bit about the recovery, how it happened and then focus on holding on to, to recovery. As you're going to conclude, or may already have concluded, uh, a lot of what I'm going to say is written down. Uh, getting old stinks. Getting old stinks. I, I, I usually say getting old sucks, and my wife pointed out, wait, wait now, you're not talking to the US, you're talking to, to UK, right? So don't use the word sucks, use the word stinks. So getting old stinks. Uh, I used to think that aging brought wisdom. Well, maybe, but it also takes away other things. Uh, I'm about to be 81 years old in two weeks. And the words no longer seamlessly flow out of my mouth like they used to 20 years ago. So I have to have outlines and, and uh, lots of words down on the paper uh, to remind me. But they're my words, of course. You know, they're, they're my words out of my brain. Just because I have to put them on paper to remember doesn't make them bad. So what was I like? Uh, I was an only child. Um, I had a what I would call an untreated, mentally ill, smothering mother and a uh, no emotion, stone, workaholic father. I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains coal mining country, uh, back country in the US. My earliest memories as a little, little kid standing on the front porch, looking out, watching men go by with their lunch buckets in the morning, walking on the way to the mines. And in the evening, seeing them come back uh, in front of the house go, going home. So that was a place back in those mountains that I started wanting to escape from as early as 
fifth and sixth grades. So I can remember I, I didn't feel right. I felt like I needed to go someplace else. So there's no question what I got from my mother when I look back. What I got from her was fear, feelings of being somehow different from others, uh, feelings of less than, not good enough, separate and apart from, never quite fitting in, always feeling like I was on the outside looking in, them versus us. Them versus us was the story of my childhood. My mother had a uh, terrible childhood of her own, uh, a, an, a, an abusive, uh, alcoholic father who abused the eight children. They literally grew up in poverty and had to depend upon handouts and to get things. She ran away from home to escape that alcoholic abusive father when she was 13 years old, ran to the, the nearest city, got a job, lied about her age, got a job, never went back to school. So my mother's education was sixth, seventh grade, something like that. And uh, so she had all of her life, those insecurities and fears and all the things that go with that home that she escaped from as a child. What did I get from my dad? What I got from him was never ask for help. Real men are self-sufficient. You know, also men don't do feelings. You know, you hold those feelings in. Don't be soft. Don't be a softy. Don't be a girly and express your feelings. But on the positive side, I got a, a, a work ethic from him. He implanted by example. Remember, I said he was a workaholic. But he gave me the example, uh, uh, the idea that um, nothing comes from nothing. You want something, you need to work for it. There is no free lunch. So that got uh, implanted in, into me. Uh, he had actually me working. I was, I was working physical work from about sixth grade on. In high school, um, I did academically okay, but way, way below my potential. This was the uh, 50s, and high school for me was about rock and roll, fast cars, sex, and sports. I mean, what else is there when you're 16, 17 years old, right? Still, though, the fear. Still a lot of fear. Always feeling different. Always feel like I'm sort of outside looking in. Despite being an athlete, three, three sports, lettered athlete and class officer in my high school for, for three years. So what was going on there was the, what I call the Jekyll and Hyde response. It really came to full bloom in, in high school. There was a lot of play acting, a lot of pretending, a lot of dishonesty. I was acting one way, but inside I was feeling a whole different way, scared to death inside. College was about drinking and a broken heart at the end of my freshman year that I dealt with intelligently by one, building a wall around myself intended to never let anyone in and therefore never ever experience that pain again. Never again am I going to allow that to happen. The second thing I did, the really intelligent thing was drop out of college and run away and join the military for three years. So I went into the military for three years where I was, I was very, very fortunate in what happened to me in there? I did not go to Vietnam. This was the Vietnam days. And I was about the only one in, in my uh, uh, group, my company, that did not go to Vietnam. Instead, they put me in a, uh, in a laboratory 
um, based upon some of the tests and so forth that given me. So they put me in a research laboratory, U US Army Medical Research Laboratory, where I was very fortunate to work with uh, all PhDs in experimental psychology and then got to go to college while I was in the army. So I picked up another couple of years of college while I was actually in the army with the army paying the bill. Uh, I didn't finish though. I eventually went back to college after the army and this time the hard way with a wife and a child and working full-time in a wide variety of jobs from uh, night clerk at the Howard Johnson's hotel to uh, Coliseum ticket seller, uh, usher in the theater, uh, I, I was on a cleanup detail in a pickle factory, which was the absolute worst job I've ever had, and I've had a lot. Pickle factory cleaning up. Imagine the smell. They put me in these, this rubber container. I was totally covered with this stuff and just had to go around with my hose and broom and, and clean up. That was awful. Uh, the best job I had, though, in college was radio news reporter. I did that for about two, um, well, almost two years. Uh, a great Fun job, they gave me a car and said, go find news. Go find human interest news. And that's what I did. So there's a lot of really good stories uh, attached to that, but that's not what, what we're here for today. Um, I finished with a bachelor's degree in experimental psychology and social anthropology. I worked a couple of years. Then I went back to grad school uh, from where I was hired by a very large corporation in the US, worldwide corporation. At that time, it was in, I think, I don't know, uh, 28 countries, something like that. And I moved to New York. Uh, so this is small town boy going to New York. So while it looked from the outside, like the beginnings of the American dream, poor kid from nothing, moving out of the country, making good in the big city. I was actually in the suburbs of New York. Uh, that's what it looked like on the outside, but inside, it was really a sellout on my part. I was just tired of working and going to school and struggling, counting every penny. Uh, so I got tired and I decided to go for the money. And that's what I did. That, that master's degree that I got when I went back, I thought would get me a good job in corporate America, and it did. What I really wanted to do was to go on for a PhD in clinical psychology. Uh, never got there. More kids and just got caught up in the corporate world. So while rapidly moving upward in the corporate world uh, as a result of my perfectionism and compulsive working, these all go with things, right? Compulsive working, perfectionism, those are all driven by fears, fear, doubt, and insecurity, to use out of the phrase out of the big book. While that was going on on the outside, the houses were getting bigger. Uh, more things, uh, yes, ni nicer things, going to better places, all that stuff was happening. But inwardly, I was feeling emptier and emptier and emptier, unhappy. So there was material success on the outside, but on the inside, there was just steady emotional deterioration. I found out, you know, in hindsight, <clears throat> I can see that achievement does not equal self-esteem. Money isn't, doesn't do it. The house doesn't do it. The money doesn't do it. The kids in the right schools doesn't do it. That's not what it's about. My disease, well, uh, I think we can say that there's a gen I was genetically predisposed to this. There was a genetic element. 
as I said, my mother's father was a gutter level uh, alcoholic. Uh, he was actually a lumberjack in the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, that's what he did. He would, but the money he made, all the money he made went to alcohol and, and playing around. So there was some genetic predisposition there. And all of my mother's eight sisters, well, it's actually six sisters, two brothers, um, all the women, all the sisters were overweight, as was my mother. In grade school, I was not obese. I was the heaviest one in the class, but I was not obese. Uh, my dieting started in grade school where they said, you know, okay, you need to lose a few pounds so you can fit in those regular pants there. Uh, so I, I started that in grade school, but it was not big numbers. It was small numbers. We're talking maybe 10 pounds or something like that. In high school, I played sports, as I've mentioned. And so I kept it under control. If you were to see a picture of me in high school, uh, you would say, looks perfect, right? On the outside. In that food affected my pre-adult life, but did not destroy it. So what happened is that things began to change when I hit my 20s and life got hard. Over a 20 year period, I became a miserably unhappy adult, unconsciously using food as medication, unconsciously using food as medication until I eventually became addicted to the medication. And this is all hindsight, of course. I, of course, had no idea what I was doing. By my late 30s, I had two problems. One was weight close to 400 pounds and all the physical and social issues that go with that. The doctors were warning me. I was taking all kinds of blood pressure medicine, pre-diabetes medicine, all that stuff. So two problems. Was that gross obesity, which was affecting me in all ways. And the other problem, I didn't want to live. Suicidal obsession began in my probably 36, 37 years old and went on until I came into the program and, and uh, when I was 41 years. Um, I was miserably unhappy in life. Uh, I felt trapped. I concluded there was no way out, uh, no hope, no hope. I couldn't see any future whatsoever. So I might as well do, with away, do away with myself, why, why bother? So I accept, obsessed um, a long time on how best to do it. Um, Meanwhile, I ate and ate and ate and ate and ate, tried to figure out how I could do this in the way that would be the least painful to my children and to my spouse. Yes, I was crazy, obviously, trying to figure out how to kill myself in the least painful way to my family. So I drove to a bridge over the Hudson River uh, on Christmas night, 1981, about 3 a.m. in the morning. Everybody was asleep. This is not in the city. This is about 20, 20 miles up the river from the city. So nobody around, totally quiet. Uh, I parked on a side street and I stood there looking at the empty bridge, walked out onto the bridge, looking up the river. Uh, it was, I can remember the snow was falling. I could see the faint light of a tugboat coming down the river. Don't know exactly how long I stood there at the railing. Uh, but I didn't jump. The interesting thing is, I do not remember coming off of the bridge. I do not remember at all walking back off of the bridge, going back to the car. The first thing I remember 
is when I opened the car door and the light came on in the car. First thing I remember, and on the seat was my wallet and other things that I had left, so there would be no doubt you know, who I was and what I was doing. Um, I got back in the car, went home, uh, creeped back into the house, went back into bed, and my wife was not aware, former wife now, was not aware that I had even left. And she knows not what I'm telling you, not to this day does she know anything about this incident. One month later, I ended up in a, uh, what we called in those days a fat farm, meaning kind of a rehab, rehabilitation place in North Carolina, a southern state that happened to be a 12-step based program. I had no idea. Uh, I had never heard of OA. I had heard of AA because I had written actually a paper on, in, on AA uh, in college. So my first meeting in OA was there in that rehab on January 26, 1982. And that's the 40 years that we're talking about coming up in January. They handed me a big book in an AA 12 and 12. And I still have those uh, books. Those are on the, on the shelf behind me. The big book has been rebound now twice. And it can't be rebound again. There's just nothing to hold on to, to paste, to do anything with. So I finally had to buy a new one. Uh, but I still go back to the old one that has all the writing in the, in the margins and all the different colors. There's reds and there's yellows and there's underlines and there's blues, all this stuff over the years. The very last thing they told me uh, when I left that rehab was actually it was an order. They said, you will go to an OA meeting tomorrow when you get home. So I went home on a Sunday and, and Monday, I went to my first non-rehab OA meeting. Um, I've been going to meetings since then. I've never left. So I estimated one time that's probably about 7,000 meetings I've been to uh, over these almost 40 years. 7,000 meetings. I'm going to keep coming until I get it right, right? Practice, practice, practice. So I came to the program grossly obese, suicidal, and an atheist. I didn't mention the, the atheist before. I'm not any of those things anymore. And I'm grateful for uh, OA showing me how to get a second chance at life. Notice I said showing me how. There is no magic as far as I can see. You know, I may, may have been will powerless to stop using food as a drug, but I was not helpless. And that's what I was pointed out today. You're not helpless, Don. Recovery was and it is all about taking actions, as I said in my uh, introduction. One of the few right ways of thinking that I already had when I came to the program was accepting that there is no free lunch. Remember my father, there is no free lunch. Work is required or said another way. And that's my sort of my theme today. Freedom isn't free. Right. And that's that's the name of the story that I referenced. Um, this is a program. And this is this may be the most important line I'll say for the day. This is a program where I've learned that I act my way into right thinking not think my way into right acting. I can't think my way in. I can act my way in. You know, to get overeating, you have to stop overeating. To get over drinking, you have to stop drinking. That's what our plan of eating tool is all about. So I have to act my way into right thinking, not think my way into right acting. Getting well for me has meant well, physically, I need to learn the nature of my food addiction and a, and a new way of eating that keeps it in check what I call a new normal. It's not a diet. 
it's a new normal, a new way of eating that I can eat this way for the rest of my life. Emotionally, uh, I needed to uncover the attitudes and the beliefs, the coping mechanisms that I had that were counterproductive to living a good life and change them. And that's what the steps are all about. The 12 steps are a change process. So I need to discover the things that were obstacles to clear thinking, because even though I thought my thinking was clear, it was not. Spiritually, it's been a long journey, very, very long journey. I had to go on this journey within, journey within, to meet my true self, uh, to get in touch with the spirit within, which some call God, and to discover my purpose. Why was I given the gift of life? What am I doing here? What is this all about? How, what makes, what brings peace to me? When do I feel aligned with my purpose in life? That was the spiritual journey. So it's a three-part solution. Uh, one doesn't work without the other. Look, I look at them as a circle, right? It's not uh, linear. It's a circle. They all work together. How I got well and stay well in, in, in brief. Here's the steps in brief for me. Step one, I put down the food. I had to detox from the food so I could objectively examine my life. Drunks can't look at themselves objectively, nor can people still drunk from the, from the food. Food was the symptom. Food was not my ultimate problem. Yes, I had gotten addicted to certain things, but ultimately I had, what led me to the addiction was my thinking. Because if you look at the addiction cycle described in the doctor's opinion, first comes the feelings, right? Restless, irritable, and discontent are the old fashioned words used there. So any feeling, be it fear, anger, frustration, or whatever, what creates feelings? Feelings come from my thinking. How I think about life creates the feelings. And what OA has taught me is how to rethink so that I don't have those fears and angers and frustrations and all that. So I learned new ways of coping in OA. So food was not the ultimate, uh, the food was the symptom, as I said. Step two, from seeing and hearing recovery in the OA rooms, I gained the hope that kept me coming back. I went through step two in just, just an instant. I didn't deal with any of the God stuff, higher power stuff, didn't understand any of that. But I did understand that I was listening to people in those rooms that used to be where I was, and they weren't there anymore. So I said, I don't know what it is that you guys got, but okay, I'm going to stick around and see what I can do. And that's all step three for me was committing to work the program. It's like I kind of, okay, I agree. I'm going to admit myself to this metaphorical OA hospital and follow directions. And that's what it was. Surrender wasn't so much giving up to me as it was deciding to cooperate. Surrender was deciding to cooperate with a new set of ideas. And again, as I look back, I can see that was a higher power for me, a new set of ideas, because that's what I, I went for. Four, five, six, and seven are the change steps, and this is where all the action really began for me. Um, I began rebuilding myself. You know, Appendix Two of the Big Book talks about spiritual awakening as uh, personality change. If that appendix had not been in the book, I would not be here today because the God stuff was so repulsive to me. I had been abused as a child that had to do with very, very conservative uh, religion. And so it, I was convinced by the time I was five or six or seven years old, I was doomed and going to hell because that's all I heard about. If you think bad things, you're going to hell, et cetera, et cetera. So I, had, I was very, very angry about that. Um, so 
in these change steps, I began rebuilding myself into that person, doing that personality of rebuilding thing that it talks about. I began to, some examples. I began to face and deal with life rather than whine and eat. And that was me. Poor, poor me, whine, whine, whine. Over on my, uh, on my wall there, I have a nice big sign that says, no whining, no whining, no whining. That's what my old sponsor gave me, that tough love sponsor. So I began to face and deal with life. I began taking responsibility, no more blaming others or circumstances. I was the, uh, uh, the if only guy. If only, if you had, if you had my wife, if you had my uh, parents, if you had my job, if you had my boss, blah, 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 blah. All those things are blame, to blame. No, not, not so. I began to let go of that self-centeredness and controlling, uh, but by controlling, I'm talking about the mental master planning for the world. I was imposing shoulds and oughts on people. This is the way people ought to behave. This is the way they should behave. This is what they should do, etc. in my head. And the problem is nobody could read my mind. And they didn't, so they didn't know what they were supposed to do, how they were supposed to act, how they were supposed to respond. And so I was always frustrated. Of course, it's crazy. But that's the inside of my head was putting shoulds and oughts on the world. I began to let go of the uh, self-sabotaging perfectionism that ensured that I was all, would always feel not good enough. You know, if you're perfectionistic, you can't live up to it. So you always feel bad, always feel less than. I began to let go of selfishness. Um, there was a gradual paradigm shift from how do I get to how can I be useful? That didn't come overnight, but that's major, major paradigm shift that occurred uh, to me and, and is still there is I'm looking to see how I can be useful in the world now, not how do I get, get, get these things. Uh, I began practicing acceptance of reality, the world as it is. Five minutes. Letting go of anger and resentment. I began to practice courage rather than fear. For a long time, it was simply white knuckle courage. Um, other examples, uh, eight and nine, I took full, re full responsibility for what I've done, had done, made amends, put the past away. 10, 11, and 12, every morning I inventory my emotional and spiritual condition. I make the necessary corrections to my thinking. I continue to grow as well as keep the slate clean. Every morning I seek to understand God's will for me in prayer and meditation, say my own prayers, as well as the uh, 3rd, 7th, and 11th. I'm going to come back to that in a second. And step 12, I devote a great deal of one-on-one -on -one time trying to help others, sponsees, going through the steps, uh, as well as Really, since 97, when I retired, my life has been devoted to OA service at all levels. Um, so service, OA service is basically my, my full-time job, um, has been for 20 years. Let me talk a little bit more about holding on. Holding on to recovery has meant adhering to a daily treatment plan. I call it a daily treatment plan because this is what gives me that daily reprieve. Every day is there. The obsession is not there. I don't think about food as long as I do these things. So daily treatment plan. Uh, step 10 example, of course, the big book talks about selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Uh, one of the things I do, though, not every day, but this is an example, is uh, how am I doing living the moral principles of the steps? 
How am I doing living the moral principles of the steps? Because the steps all have principles behind it. So am I staying honest with myself? Uh, that is accepting I have a disease that I can't control but with willpower. Two, am I surrendering control of the world to God or something? Not me. Three, am I facing my reality with courage? Four, am I identifying my faults? Five, am I sharing my real self with another person? Six, am I asking God to help me change my defects into assets and cooperate by practicing the assets? Am I forgiving? Eight, am I making amends when needed? Nine, am I practicing unconditional love? 10, am I doing an ongoing inventory? 11, am I connecting with God every day to understand his will for me? 12, am I helping others who share my food addiction? All those things make up, all the things inside of those things make up part of my daily treatment plan. 11th step, I spend about an hour, 45 minutes to an hour every morning. Now remember, I'm retired, so I can take as much time as I want. Uh, in the days when I wasn't retired, I didn't have this much time, but now I do have time. So my 11th step in the morning is really 10 and 11. I'll just quickly run through what I do, not, not explaining any of them. Uh, opening prayer, then I, I do a plan. I do a food plan every day. I write it down. And I do a, uh, a work plan every day, write it down. And I do, believe it or not, an attitude plan. Uh, I don't have time to talk about what the attitude is all about, but it has to do with the fact that for the last three years, I've suffered from chronic pain and uh, disability. I, you know, this is an athlete, and now I'm in chronic pain and can't walk. So that has to do with some of the attitude stuff. Uh, inventory, I do the inventory, 10-step inventory in the morning, not in the evening, as the big book suggests. I do, uh, I do, uh, I read daily reading books. I have a bunch of books on my, on my desk that I use. I write applications from those big books. I read something, I say, okay, how's that applied to me? And I'll write about it. I do a gratitude list every day, extraordinarily important for me. Um, I do prayers every day, as I said. And I do affirmations and then try to do meditation. But because of the ongoing pain that I refuse to take the opioids for, it's very hard for me to meditate other than simple breathing exercises. I can no longer really quiet myself down because the pain level is always there. And so it, just, it just doesn't quiet down. Um, affirmations, I mentioned affirmations. Uh, the one set of affirmations that I use every morning is, is this. I literally say these every morning, read these every morning on my worksheet, with I, which I have in front of me. I remain abstinent no matter what. God will walk with me through the forest of tomorrow and beyond. One way I stay close to God is by being loving and helpful to others. I accept the reality of my age and physical condition. I surrender to the flow of life. I have faith that God will give me the strength and courage to deal with whatever comes. I hold on to hope that the disability will not worsen. I trust that those who love me will be with me to the end. I live life based upon love and service, to use Dr. Bob's words, and the principles of the 12-step program. Those principles, not just the 12 that you read or the 24 that you read in the, in the OA, 12 and 12, but other principles that I think are also involved. Uh, I am grateful for all I have and all I've done. I deal with life with the mindset of a problem solver and the attitude of an overcomer. I view challenges as opportunities. I find something to get enthusiastic about. 
I organize my life into projects and goals and checkpoints. So yes, I need, I have a pretty structured life and that's what I need. That's part of my daily treatment plan. Uh, as I said, Time. I say prayers. I'll go about five minutes more if it's okay. Um, I say uh, the prayers, as I mentioned every, uh, every morning and the seven step prayer, I say the, the standard prayer as it is in the big book. And the last line says, grant me strength as I go out from here to do thy bidding. And then I add on something. I add on specifically God. And I write, the, and this will tell you a lot, about, a lot about my fourth step and the things that I constantly have to work on. I say specifically, God, help me today to live in faith rather than fear and anxiety about my dis disabled future. Help me to live in a state of surrender rather than trying to control the uncontrollable. Help me live in acceptance of reality rather than denial or fantasy. Help me live in forgiveness rather than animosity. And it goes on seven or eight others there. Help me live in the present rather than the past or future. Help me to forgive and love myself rather than condemn myself. Help me to live in action rather than procrastination. So. Uh, let me finish up uh, with giving you a few examples of what I have learned in the program that I need to, need to get well and, and stay well. I've got 28 of these here. I'll give you about six or eight. Uh, I, need a, I need a clearly and honestly defined food plan. That's the base. If I haven't been honest with my food and have a solid plan in place, I'm going nowhere because I'll be fighting the food forever. I need to let go of trying to control life. That is trying to run things my way. Give the universe back to God. Three, I need to take responsibility for my thinking and behavior rather than blaming and justifying and playing the victim. I've learned in this program what my sponsor told me in the very beginning, and I thought he was totally full of baloney, crap, whatever. He said, Don, you're responsible for how you feel. And I said, bullshit, I'm not responsible for how I feel. Those people are, situations are. And he said, no, not true. You're responsible. You can change how you feel by changing the sentences going through your head. And I said, you're crazy. He said, no, try it. And I have learned that I can change how I feel by changing the sentences going through my head. For example, simplest example, every morning when I get up, sometimes I'm in a pretty low, dark place. I can sit down read the books, do writing, and guess what I'm doing? I'm changing sentences going through my head. I come out of that session feeling a totally different person. I go in dark and dreary, and I come out anxious and enthusiastic about getting into the day. Um, I need to never stop my spiritual development. I need to live in honesty, stop lying to myself and others. I need to learn to <clears throat> tolerance of things not like me. That's the live and let live slogan. I need to forgive myself and others for being human and making mistakes. I need to be kind to all. I need to fellowship with people on the same path. My father was wrong. He said, you know, you need to be self-sufficient. You don't need other people. That's weakness. And that, of course, was total nonsense. I need to have a sponsor from whom there are no secrets. And, you know, all this time, I have a sponsor. We talk once a week. Uh, I need to practice balance in all things rather than impulsiveness or compulsiveness or excess. I need, to have a, I need to have a life direction determined by an attitude of what I can put in rather than what I get out. And that's my constant remissioning of myself 
as my disability get, gets worse. I can't do what I used to do. So I've learned, okay, what can you do? Focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. Um, I need to focus on solutions rather than problems. And God doesn't fix things. He gives me the power to take the actions to fix things. I'll say that again. God doesn't fix things. He gives me the power to take the actions that fix things, also known as the 12 steps. I'll close with a few words on magic. There is no magic, as I think I said in the beginning. There's only slowly developing miracles that happen when I put myself in a position to receive them by trying to live my life according to the principles of these steps, traditions, and tools. The magic comes from taking the actions, right? Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps is what it says in step 12. I visualize what it is that I want to be. Then I visualize the action steps that may take be there. Then I start taking the actions. So remember what I said, we act our way into right thinking rather than think our way into right acting. So uh, I continue to grow. I have to work at it every day if I want to keep this disease in check because I have it for the rest of my life. Sometimes the things are spiritual, some that I, that I uh, that do, like finding things that nurture my soul, and nature is one of those things. So today, I'm going to get outside because it's a beautiful day, clear sky. It's not warm, warm, but it's fine. That nurtures my soul, and it brings me closer to higher power. So what's my point? My point is, there is no magic. There's only actions, 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 and faith. Freedom is not free. That's my that's my theme. Thank you very much, Rita, for asking me.